Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 136 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Rachel Yoder and just a little bit about her. She's the author of Night Bitch, which is from Doubleday. It's her debut novel released in July of last year, 2021. It's also been optioned for film by Anna Perna Pictures with Amy Adams set to star. She's a graduate of the Iowa nonfiction writing program and also holds an MFA in fiction from the University of Arizona. Her writing has been awarded with the Editor's Prize in Fiction by the Missouri Review and with notable distinctions in Best American Short Stories and Best American Non-Required Reading. She's also a founding editor of Draft, the Journal of Process. Rachel grew up in a Mennonite community in the Appalachian foothills of Eastern Ohio. She now lives in Iowa City with her husband and son. Thanks so much for joining for me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Pete. It's been a minute since I've been on a podcast, so I had to brush all the cobwebs off of my thoughts. <laughs> I won't be too hard, especially when talking about such a great book. We'll, we'll talk about all the good stuff, but you know, with a focus on, on Night Bitch, which has already been optioned for film. Amy Adams as, I guess, the titular character? Yeah, and then the movie as, I mean, knock on wood, is a, is a go. It's set to um, start filming, start being produced this fall so um hopefully it all comes together and cameras start rolling yes. it's really surreal and exciting oh i'm always i'm always one like maybe to my detriment you like as a teacher or something like that like i am not showing the film this book we're reading or you know like the book is always better than the movie but <laughs> and i know this book you know they'll be on equal turn i mean this will be such a good movie I, there's so much visual i can't wait to see what the actual like dog wolf like creature looks like yeah, same. Yeah. I mean, I think that was something I got to sort of write around in the book, you know, yeah. like if you're working in a non-visual um, medium, then you can sort of, you know, do some tricks where you don't exactly have to show it. But right. with film, it's going to be up there. What will it look like? I don't oh, know. Man. How, uh, how closely do you think will you be involved with uh, like the screenplay and screenwriting or? I haven't really been involved with that. The, the mm. director who's Marielle Heller wrote a amazing screenplay I'm right. really excited about I think it's going to be an extraordinary movie <laughs> yeah nothing but excitement well I'll be uh you know trumpeting this book to the to the heavens and same with the movie so looking forward <laughs> to to sharing both you know so the last line of your bio is about growing up in a Mennonite community in the Appalachian Appalachia Appalachia you can say it either way I okay. still don't know which one is right okay all right <laughs> A true in true literary form right whatever you think it is yeah whatever it means to you I'd love to know just about about growing up about you know your interest in language whether that's languages I, I wonder was there like similar to the book was there like a, a German strain was there you know other languages besides English um, you know what were you reading what were you into as, as a kid 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I did grow up around my aunts and uncles speaking Pennsylvania Dutch, uh, um, which I never learned okay. and wish I had. Um, and it's only a it's only really a spoken language. It's not a written language, so it would be really difficult for me to learn it now. So yeah, um, I grew up around that, and I guess just given who my parents are, um, my dad grew up Amish, but then his whole family transitioned over and became Mennonite. And so my dad is, my dad loves learning things and he's somewhat of an intellectual. So he, you know, wound up going to college. He got a a bachelor and and a master's. Mm. My mom also went to college. And so they were kind of first generation college goers after, Uh you know, these decades and generations of Amish families. Um, Yeah, so so in our household, at least, we were really into reading and stories and my dad's really into film too. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom was a librarian. uh, Yeah, yeah, when I was growing up. So stories really were kind of at the center of our sort of like the intellectual life of our family. So I remember some previous like Wikipedia rabbit hole searches. So like Pennsylvania, so Pennsylvanian Dutch, but of German ancestry. So the Dutch is, it's not, they're not Dutch. Yeah, it's, it's strange, right? It's okay. called Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, my family, a lot of Mennonite Anabaptist uh, people come from Switzerland. There are different okay. strains. So like my family is from Switzerland. There's Germanic. There's also like Russian um, Mennonites. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and they all kind of speak these different dialects of German. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right, so for, how about for the next hour and a half, can I just have you give a lecture on just the history of the minute? No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I wish I could. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know enough. That's a lot of, a lot of pressure to put on you, a lot of expectations. So, so what were you writing? I mean, did you, what were you reading, I should say? Did you have any limits on what you could read? Was it like, there's the bookshelf, take whatever you want? I had no limits on what I could read, okay. which is sort of extraordinary. I mean, you know, my dad was, we lived at like the dead end of a dirt road in a Mennonite commune and we got the New Yorker and Harper's every week uh, in the mail. Um, so those, I mean, and I read those from the time I was in like junior high, you know, um, it was kind of like these letters from an outside world right. coming in. And I was like, oh, look at New York, like, look at all the ideas out there. But no, I mean, oddly enough, like no real limits. I, you know, when I was little, I loved Nancy Drew. Um, There was this series by John Benton who ran like a home for women in upstate New York where he was Christian, he was Christian. Mm -hmm. And the, every single book was the name of a woman, like Candy or Trish or Gina. And, you know, they were like sex workers or drug addicts or single moms living on the streets. And every story was this, look at this woman. She's really down and out. John John Benton meets her. He brings her to his home. She finds Jesus. I was very um, interested in those. I mean, it was like more interested in kind of like the stories of the women before they met John Benton. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I read like a lot of those weirdly Mm. enough. Um, yeah. And then I also just spent a lot of time at the library because my mom was working there. And Mm. so really it was just this childhood of 
pulling books off the shelf and saying, Hey, what's, you know, what's this book? So, so cool. So cool. Yeah. yeah. What a, what a great image of like that, literally like to the end of a dirt road, just like that portal to like New York and yeah, man, that talking about the John Ben books, this sounds so familiar. I got to, I'll search later on. I'm like, I feel like I remember see, like when you talk about the single name, like I, yes. where did I see those? And just like an amazing image of the woman uh, too. Like, Wow. I was just, so, I was just like, who are these women? They're uh-huh. so, I don't know them. Like I've never seen women like this. And so I think I was allowed to read them because they were like, Chris, you know, mm. ultimately about God's love and salvation. Mm. But um, I was just really interested in those women. <laughs> Seems like they were mainly about John Benton. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> they were John Benton propaganda. Also. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think about John Benton? random lady yeah oh my gosh wow yeah okay um as you got older than into high school and in college were you you know where did the writing come in I mean were you writing from a young age was it one of those like hey if I'm reading I'm gonna write my own how did reading and writing play off each other and, and kind yeah of I mean right yeah writing was just like an, a natural thing I just mm-hmm. did but I never thought of it as something um it was always a hobby or just yeah. something that I like to do. I never ever considered it something that I could actually do for a career that seemed, Hmm. you know, like I didn't understand how that would work or how you would make money. And so, you know, I was an English major in college, but I never took any creative writing classes. Um, And it wasn't until I found myself in Arizona and kind of had like a, you know, like a crisis of some, some people in their early twenties do, um, found myself in Arizona, sort of lost and wound up taking, um, a creative writing class at this little college where I was working because I did secretly want to be a writer, but it seemed, (laughs) you know, like it seemed a little indulgent and silly for me to Mm. to do that. But once I took this class, I found it was this very kind teacher, shout out to English teachers who are the best. Yes. And she became my writing mentor and she said, you're a writer and you should get, um, you should go to grad school and this is how Whoa. you do it. And really like changed the course of my life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of like the timeline. I mean, obviously you would have come after, but was, was David Foster Wallace, was he a big, was he a professor at the University of Arizona or he went there himself for his MFA? He went there before I went there. Yeah. I think he's maybe, he was maybe 10 years older than me or something. Yeah, so he was kind was. of still, everyone was really talking about him, but I like uh, never met him. Or, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who were you introduced to in those days? I mean, who were, who were the, the writers who really just um, thrilled you? Inspired yeah. You? I mean, early on, as many, as many um, young writers are, I loved Raymond Carver. Mm. You know, he made me think, that I too could write stories because they were just, you know, they seemed so spare and so simple mm-hmm. and like, I could do that too. Yeah. Um, so he was really formative. I mean, I read a lot of Amy Hempel who I still okay. read today okay. and return to. And I really came to writing through short stories, like not through yes. novels. Yes. Who else? Like Lori Moore, uh-huh. Hemingway to a certain extent. Right. Yeah, uh, those were the ones that, that, I mean, those are all very different writers. So, um, oh, Pam Houston was a huge one because Pam okay. Houston 
was writing about being out West and being single and, uh-huh. you know, trying to figure out relationships and trying to figure out her body and its power in this, in this sort of Western terrain. So right. yeah, she was also really important at the beginning. Oh, yeah. I've always, I mean, obviously respect for the books, but I've always felt like Hemingway, the short stories were the ones that I was drawn to. Yeah. Same. You know, like the sun also rises, like, okay, cool. But like, give me a clean, well-lighted place or, you know, one of those just on Twitter today, I saw this, there was like a little uh, thread going on about like, which like a short story that like changed the way you looked at writing and that type of thing. Is there, are there any like the Lori Moores or Hempels or Pam Houston, the one stories that just like really stood out to you or Carver or whomever? Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm not going to be able to remember the name of the Amy Hempel story now, Right, but it's a, spot, sorry. <laughs> no it's okay but it's a story where she gets in a wreck uh the the protagonist gets in a car wreck and she kind of writes the story of that and then goes back and she's like but this is what really happened and so it, it like turns into you're like is this autobiography or is this uh... is this nonfiction? is this fiction what is she doing here and it's kind of makes you it's, it's kind of interrogating like what a story even is oh, man. um and and like the parameters of a story which i think she's sort of doing in all of her work to a certain extent uh-huh. but when i read that i was kind of like who is this woman and is she a witch <laughs> i'm like what is she doing um so yeah that that kind of blew my mind and made me see that it helped it sent me on this journey where I was kind of like very interested in genre and very interested in interrogating um these sort of artificial boundaries okay that were given as writers yeah when you talk about like the parameters is that like having to do with like plot and sequence and narrative or like was it just does it so by the way it looks like it's called the harvest is that right the harvest that is what it's called yes I mean, yeah. that, was it one of those that like it doesn't necessarily follow chronologically it's yeah it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't stay inside a a consistent imagined world okay. like the narrator becomes r- very real almost to the point that mm. it's the author talking to you i see but the, oh, okay. and so that to me that tension was really interesting when i first read that story oh okay thank you thank you for that Twenty twenty two recent years like who are some of the writers i mean whether or not they write in the same genres or genres you or same style who are some of the writers who really just you know you're excited when you see something new from them yeah I mean I will always read a new book from Miriam Taves who's mm-hmm. a Canadian writer and also grew up Mennonite um but even if she hadn't grown up Mennonite I mean her books I are always I mean I've never I, I don't typically cry during mm-hmm. when I'm reading and I've cried during all of her books mm-hmm. um I love her writing it's really funny and uh I will also always read an Otessa Moshvig book uh, for better or for worse. (laughs) Though I don't know if I'm going to read 
the most current one. I'll, I'll have to take a look at it. Um, but I think she's just doing, making really interesting choices and she is willing to be, make frank choices and bold mm-hmm. choices that a lot of people don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's interesting and exciting to me. Stylistic uh, choices or like subject matter choices? I think, I guess stylistic. I mean, I think it's also interesting that she kind of um, has been writing through different genres. So she kind of did like a mystery book and mm. um, now like her, her most current one is like a historic fiction. Okay. Um, but yeah, she, her books are, are also, they have characters in them that maybe aren't the most um, appealing people, which is also interesting to me. Mm. Mm. As you got into, you talk about like the, the, you know, the graduate degrees for writing. Did you, I mean, did you do like the classic, like, you know, speaking of like Hemingway, I mean, did you go like fight in the civil war or did you, you know, to get like life experience, did you go sail away? Did you, like, did you have jobs that were related to writing right away? Or was it more of like the quote, life experience? Did I have jobs? I mean, I didn't have, I, it's, I wish I could have been like a cowgirl or something when I lived in <laughs> Tucson or in Arizona. Oh, but yeah. no, I was, you know, like a waitress and an administrative assistant. Um, so, I mean, I feel like I had so much to write about already by the time I was 21, just with okay. um, all the Mennonite stuff and then the college stuff and then the coming to Arizona stuff. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't really have any great um, stories of jobs worked. It was, it was a pretty normal like mixture of jobs you have in your 20s. <laughs> As, uh, as, as part of your website, you have a link to like inspiration and it's all kinds of art. Um, do you, I mean, what do you think about the idea of like the muse? Do you have a lot of muses? Are you like, you know, listening to, to Beethoven when you're writing while looking at a, some pottery, you know, like <laughs> what, how do, how does, how does art like visual mm-hmm. art, like stereotypical art in that way work with your writing? I mean, kind of, that sounds like a great idea to listen to Beethoven while I look at some pottery and write. I have a, I have a sort of something that I developed during the pandemic, a sort of um, meditation that I do before. So I'll have, I have all these things sitting around me. Um, this, I write out here a lot. So for instance, I have these cards by Brian Eno. Okay. They're called oblique strategies. I have never used them yet, but you know, perhaps one day I'll pull one out and it, they have, they, what is, I'll find a good one for you. Um, they have these like kind of mystical, like you don't have to be ashamed of using your own ideas. And that's like supposed to be, you know, something you then meditate on while you're writing. I don't know. Um, so I'll ha- I have various kind of like process books uh-huh. and things like this out here. This is this book, Art and Fear. I will read a bit from before I start writing. Um, I'll read a bit from David Lynch's process book. Oh yeah. Um, so I sort of have like my my gurus and my people mm. um, with me in books. Okay. And that 
that is how I kind of get into the work because it can be just sort of scary to start writing and, and difficult to get into the work. Hmm. Um, so I kind of go and turn to how other people have get into the work first and then use that to get into it. Um, yeah, so that's, that's become my practice. Just like Hmm. finding people who are interested in their own process and then reading about that before I dive into my own. Whatever you're doing is working. So I'm, I'm taking notes. <laughs> I'm taking notes. So Brian Eno cards. Okay, cool. Right, <laughs> He's like, isn't he like the music, like synthesizer musician? Like he uh, is. Right? Yeah. I mean, and these, again, I haven't really figured out how to use them. Like here's one, you just pick this up and it's like, you are an engineer. Mm. And I could imagine like drawing that when I'm stuck and being like, okay, I'm an engine. If I'm an engineer, how do I go about writing this next scene? You know, just okay helping to sort of reframe the work. Especially in the crazy times, like around COVID and all that, um, and just, you know, having a family and all kinds of things like that. Do you, are you like upset if you get outside that process, if if one day of writing is different or is that just like, ah, that's the way it is? I mean, that kind of just has to be the way it is. Like this summer has been really hard. I haven't been able to kind of find a cocoon to go into to write. Mm -hmm. And so it just hasn't really happened. And like, I guess that's just the way it is and school starts in two weeks and maybe, you know, we'll get some writing done then. Let's talk about, about night bitch. I mean, what a, what a book, what a cover, (laughs) Um, some raw meat, which we'll probably talk about in a minute, you know, just the hand holding the raw meat. I'd love to know about the title and, or if, you know, maybe you could read that excerpt from the beginning. I don't know if, which would come first for you, if you wanted to read that and maybe it's kind of self-explanatory. But just kind of, you know, with that, just like the kind of the genesis of the book and the idea of sure. the title. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the title came before anything. The okay. title, the title was the idea that then propelled uh, the whole okay. book. Um, so I'll just read you a very, very brief, a few paragraphs. From Appreciate the that. Book. Awesome. Okay. When she had referred to herself as night bitch, she meant it as a good natured self deprecating joke because that's the sort of lady she was a good sport able to poke fun at herself definitely not uptight not wound really tight not so freakishly tight that she couldn't see the humor in a light-hearted not meant as an insult situation but in the days following this new naming she found the patch of coarse black hair sprouting from the back of her neck and was like what the fuck i think i'm turning into a dog she said to her husband when he arrived home after a week away for work. He laughed and she didn't. She had hoped he wouldn't laugh. She had hoped that week as she lay in bed wondering if she was turning into a dog, that when she said those words to her husband, he would tip his head to one side and ask for clarification. She had hoped he would take her concerns seriously. But as soon as she said the word, she saw this was impossible. Seriously, she insisted. I have this weird hair on my neck. She lifted her normal hair to show him the black patch. He rubbed it with his fingers and said, yeah, you're definitely a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, did this come from, uh, where did the idea come from? Did it come from the the tabloids? Did it come from a real life story? Did it come from? I mean, it came from a joke between me and my husband. Uh, You know, like I I was going pretty feral at night. I think my son was probably three. I, I don't think I had had a full night of sleep in three years. And when mother got woken at night, she um, was very upset. And so 
you know, one morning my husband's like, yo, last night, man. I'm like, I know, I know. And I think, I mean, I think he may have been the one to utter the word night bitch first, but, um, I was like, interesting idea. I mean, we both laughed about it and then something we sort of volleyed back and forth. And then one day I said, you know, what if I wrote a book where a mom did actually turn into a dog and he just started laughing. <laughs> um, and I'm like, it seems like a really bad idea. And he's like, yeah, Which, like we both love bad ideas. So okay. um, <laughs> I'm like, that's a bad, that's so bad. It just yeah. might be interesting. And so it was like funny enough and provocative enough and yes. um, like dumb enough that I just kind of started exploring it. Um, the, there's that you talk about the feralness. I mean, I, I, you know, you hear people tell you like, okay, you're, you know, you're never going to get a, a normal night of sleep in your life again. Right. Or you never sleep the same again after you have kids. Right. And yeah, there's, you can't describe to a non-parent, right? You can't describe to a non-mother, I think, that that tiredness that is just so bone, you know, just down to the bones, right? It really is. I mean, I, jo I joke that this is a book, this is really a book about sleep deprivation, but in um, many ways it is yes. um, about that, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you talk about how, you know, the the main character the protagonist she does literally turn into a dog literally even you know even kind of leaving it in our our in the reader's hands sometimes about okay did she literally literally turn into a dog do you think she turns into a dog it was that I, your i do and when yeah. i first read the part where uh the, the husband comes home and there's the kid and the dog i was like okay that's obviously her but then the dog runs out and i'm like oh it's not her and then later i'm like that is her <laughs> um you know as as a hirsute person myself i'm like okay maybe i think she does if you if i didn't nail it down and you're not going to tell us i mean i don't know okay. i i think in my mind i was like she doesn't turn into a dog this is just a literary book right and we're having a little fun right but you can't i mean who the one problem is who is that dog that's mm. in the living room exactly exactly who is it? I don't know. Right. And who was that woman at the dog park who was so far off and ran away? True. Uh, was that one? Yes. Anyway. So <laughs> why well, I think of Kafka and I think of Kafka because I saw the 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 blur by the great no less than the great Carmen Maria Machado writes on the cover, a feral, unholy marriage of Tilly Olson and Kafka. Night bitch is an incredible feat. I love Tilly Olson. I love I teach the um as I stand here ironing, right? Totally. Yep. It, there's a lot I, I have some my issues with Kafka I'm actually rereading it I haven't read it in like 20 years I think I'm missing it to me it seems like it's too much on the nose you know okay he's like you know, doesn't feel good about himself he becomes a beetle whatever how much were you influenced how much are like like as far as this book is an allegory mm. right like how much of it is like the literal like okay this is what happens this is an interesting story because what you do so well is you don't you don't get like or the narrator does not get like didactic and like, you know, this is why, this is how mothers need to be treated, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I just wonder about how much of like the, like I said, the allegory versus just like the literal, like this is happening. 
came into play, how you, how you balance those two? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think before anything becomes a metaphor or an allegory, it obviously just, ha- it has to be a real mm. thing that makes the story go right. It, it has to be a story. And so I guess I didn't worry too much about that as I was writing. I was more, I more thought, okay, this has to be a compelling story. I didn't even really think like, why is she a dog? Mm-hmm. I just, you know, like I didn't interrogate that. I was like, mm-hmm. she just is. And here mm-hmm. we go. Because I do think that the unconscious has a way of giving you exactly what you need without you knowing mm-hmm. it. And if you're willing to follow it into the chaos, there are many surprises and gifts there. And I think that was the process of this book, right? That right. I didn't know why it was a dog. I didn't know what these crazy moms and their MLM, why they were there. I didn't know what Wanda White's role was. So you just, that's the, you just write, write the story and find out. Mm -hmm. Um, Did Kafka even occur to me when I was writing this? Not really. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I was thinking, I was thinking more, Carmen Maria Machado. I was thinking uh, more urban myth and werewolf and, you know, blending genres in that way. But I also have, I mean, I have not read The Metamorphosis in its mm-hmm. entirety, but I've read a lot of Kafka shorts, which mm-hmm. I love. They're magical and sort of uh, unknowable. Right. Uh, yeah. And so I, that's sort of what I was writing out of. Like I was also reading a lot of Kelly Link at the time. Mm-hmm. So, I guess in terms of like allegory or what does it mean? Like, it's been really interesting to just see what other people make of it because I didn't think too much about that, that going into it. If you give me uh, some some room on the blurb for the you know the reissue, I'm gonna say it's Kafka meets Tilly Olson meets American Psycho. Oh, Have you seen that movie? Yeah, I love it. Right? Feed yeah. me, feed, feed me a dog or what, whatever the ATM. Is saying, <laughs> me, you know, I just thought like with just the blood and the just like yeah, like when he goes and he takes his stuff to the laundry and he's just you know streaked in blood, covered in blood. You know, yeah. I don't know. There was some there. But yeah, and just the whole idea too of, the, of that psychology, you know, at the very end of the movie, it's like, did all of this happen? You know, he's talking to the lawyer or whatever, and the lawyer's, you know. Anyways, Night Bitch is not her, her given name, is it? It's not her baptismal name, right? I don't think so. <laughs> so why why no name? She is she is mother, she is the mother, as opposed to at times like the working mother is her friend. Um, yeah, I mean yeah. I I suppose in that way, it's sort of allegory, you know, I was sort of like, how about a fable? How about an allegory Mm -hmm. Um, where we don't give the characters names, but they simply exist in these sort of, as these sort of um, archetypes, uh, the mother, the husband, the son, right? um, and see what happens when we play around with that. I think at one point I considered giving them names and it felt too specific, too specific, like too real. I kind of wanted to be able to not be that close and detailed. I wanted to play it back a little bit more because you know how in myths, you don't get, it's not realism. You don't get like down into Mm -hmm. the nitty gritty. You're always in this sort of, at this sort of uh, 
remove from the story so you can kind of see how everything's playing out um, at a little bit more of a distance right i i have to find attribution for this um is one of my friends told to me and he's a wise wise man but i don't think he made it up but just the idea of like um if you want to know about one man or one woman you read nonfiction. if you want to know about all women all men you read fiction right Sure. And yeah, sure. so you know, this idea that you, you know, you don't give anyone a name really. I mean, most of the important the main characters, you don't give them names, just works so well. And I just feel like with the hyperbole of the book, with the like she literally becomes a dog or close to it, like so much is accomplished there that you know couldn't have been done with nonfiction. There's there all kinds of themes of like obviously before and after, you know, <laughs> pardon the uh pardon the initials, but BM before motherhood and AM, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, the, the sadness that she goes through the, the longing, obviously body image, uh, you know, I mean, the body is, is, is torn up in some ways and, but just the singular focus on your kids. This is a day where, you know, I think my son asked for his lunch, I think seven times within about three minutes. (laughs) Right. And so in the book, one of the plot devices is that the husband is, he's pretty much gone all week. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's, while she's not a single mom, she might as well be from, from Monday to Friday. Right. Um, and that singular focus, what, I guess the interplay between that singular focus, which is, you know, you love your kids so much, it hurts. You cannot even describe it to, it's a lot of work. It is, it makes you feral. It makes you, you know, go crazy. Um, you know, especially when you don't have an outlet, like as in, in you know, Nightbiz didn't really. Yeah. Um, just, I guess that, that interplay between, that singular focus as a great thing and that singular focus as just taxing. Right. And, and, and how that singular focus and, and the sort of self-sacrifice, oh, right. Yeah. Of the stay at home parent is really lauded and affirmed in our culture um, to a degree where I think it can make it difficult for parents to feel like they are entitled to space and time away Mm -hmm. from their children, right? That it almost seems like that's one of the kind of most taboo things you can claim for yourself. Mm -hmm. To me, it felt that way too, that my being home with my child didn't fulfill all my needs. Um, And actually, having some time away from him every day, was it precisely what I needed? Hmm. Um, Yeah. And so I think it's really grappling with that, that dilemma that a lot of parents feel. Hmm. Yeah. It makes me think of like the, you know, like if if there's a stay at home dad or just, you know, dad's doing something that maybe moms stereotypically do. Everyone's, Oh, what a great dad. What a great dad. You know, oftentimes it's doing the bare minimum. Right. Right. (laughs) And like you said, just an expectation of the women, right? Like just it's assumed. Do you feel like it's lip service, the whole idea? Like you talk about of just like, oh man, you know, you're doing a great thing. Good for you. Do you feel like that's like cheapening or minimizing? Wait, when people say that about what? About, about the mother. I guess like how lucky, how great of a thing it is that you're able to stay home. I mean, I think it is. Like, I, I think it is great to be able to stay. I mean, it's like a privilege to be able to stay home. Um, but I think 
once you have a kid, you don't stop being the you you were before you had the kid, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously it's a huge transformation of your life. And so then it's all about trying to figure out, okay, how, how do I step into this new role that's Mm -hmm. all encompassing and, and like, I love it and it's very important. And I want to be with my child while at the same time, not completely losing Mm -hmm. myself to this, right. Mm -hmm. It, to such an extent that, that I become to be, I start to turn into a dog, become Mm -hmm. feral, right. Like, (laughs) because I don't know how to, to express what I need. And I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't even know what I need. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think it's complicated. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, like I loved, I loved being at home. And then at a certain point I was like, I, something needs to change and I don't Mm -hmm. know what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and then like figuring my way through that, uh, and also working against all of the messages you get that like, wow, it's really selfish that Mm -hmm. you need this, that, and the other thing. Right. Yeah, the, um, you know, obviously, like, a lot of how we've been raised is how we raise our kids or don't raise our kids, we want to do the opposite of. And so, you know, so the the protagonist, she's, in many ways, is running away from her parents, she talks about their miles away, if not 1000s of miles away. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but she there's an, I really I love how you put it towards the end of the book, not like at the end, but maybe the last three fourths, or the last one fourth of the book or so is about her mom. So Nightbitch's mom, was one it was it was an incredible singer she wanted to do opera she wanted to go to europe and there's this scene that i will remember for a long time where you know it's a flashback where she was remembering she was singing she was remembering and it was basically like a uh little did i know she just kind of like blurts out with that and the protagonist who was a kid at the time was like you know what no what no what like no she wanted to know more and it was just like this little break in the mom's real patrician or whatever kind of Mm -hmm. um right like armor where it was like her let herself go a little bit the night bitch was an incredible artist she you know she said oh she kind of downplays i didn't get a lot of you know articles this and that but she loved art and she was very good at it um so i just wonder too about like career and maybe some guilt that's forced upon women if they try to do some sort of something self-fulfilling like art, which is also happens to be a career. Yeah. I mean, wow, there's so much in there. Um, I mean, the first thing that also resonates with me is, is, is the mother's inability to articulate the, you know, like the deep true things to her daughter and her daughter's like deep thirst for that. Like, just like wanting it so badly. That I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you on that. Do you, do you feel like the mom was, was like, felt like she was saving her daughter, the pain, or she just did, truly didn't know how to articulate it. Wasn't used to articulating it. I just don't, I, I think probably for her to say it coming out of the tradition she was in, you know, okay. cause yeah. she's rendered as Mennonite um, right. in the book would uh be really taboo Mm. um and really uncomfortable for her to say and i i do think night bitch interprets her mother 
telling her to go and be the best at everything and like get out as sort of like her, I think it's put her, it's her best, her, it was her mother's best love to like push her away yes, and yes. make her like go out into the world. And she's never really, she always thought her mother was so distant mm. when really her mother was saying like, get out of here. Mm. Um, so yeah, the whole the whole dynamic and the things discovered in the mother daughter relationship in this book were really discovered. Like when I would get to them, I'd be like, oh, like that feels right, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And her, you know, wishing she could sort of save her mother, wishing she could go back and tell her mother, yes, you, should, you know, like you should do this, like save yourself, do what you want to do. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what the rest of your question was. I just like, I got I don't need I don't on the mother-daughter thing. <laughs> I, was, I was rambling a little bit. But what you're talking about with the like, you know, go back and save yourself or go back, I want to save you, mom, back in the... It, it makes me think of like, okay, so the husband, he's, I mean, literally it's written at parts in the book, like, and maybe she's trying to justify herself, but she's like, he's not a bad guy. He's not mean. He's not, um, you know, he's not violent in any way with his words or anything. He's... But like, so I guess I'm wondering, like, you want to have someone to blame. You want to have someone to blame for the, for her mother, you know, not being able to, to chase her ambition. You want to blame the husband, but in, in some ways you can, but in some ways it's hard. Like, is this just like the quote unquote, like society is just, just like, you know, cause later in the book, when she does, um, she definitely takes advantage or takes advantage of her, like her personhood. And she's just like, Hey, I'm going to do this. And he, he tells him what to do. And he's like, all right. Is it just about not feeling that you can say these things as, as a woman, as a mother? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mix of things because mm-hmm. if you think about someone who grew up Mennonite, it's sort of like taking all of the messages people might get about men and women and marriage and, you know, like roles. Mm-hmm. And if you grow up Mennonite, you're getting sort of like the most extreme, right. you know, of those. So that's what's in her background. Um, and then that, then she's coming into like contemporary society. So it's sort of like, she's playing those messages out that are really like even louder for her than for anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, those are the things that are kind of being played with then in this ongoing story with her husband. And I think I wanted, I mean, there is a part I think where she's like, she wanted to like rage at like society Mm -hmm. and you know like these ideas like what do you what do you do when you're you find yourself inside these systems right and they it really feels like they're to blame for you feeling stuck but what do you do like you're inside Mm -hmm. this is like how society works like things are set up in a certain way Mm -hmm. um so do you become like a politician and like try to change society you know like what do you do and I think there are points in the book where she's kind of like, what do I do if, mm-hmm. if I feel stuck inside this? And I think ultimately where she arrives is she's like, it starts at home and it starts like with me taking from my experience and for my own happiness, right. um, you know, and for me saying, this is what I need. This is what I need to, you know, to my husband, even though like she she grew up in a household where like her mom never said what she needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is really also about kind of like healing generational trauma, mm. um, or doing it, doing it differently than your parents did it. Right. 
Yeah. As as written in the book, there's no there's no analog for the term bitch for men. <laughs> right. Nothing, nothing hits so hard. Nothing is, you know, so upsetting. Right. I don't bring up other than to say very interesting and, you know, ideas of, you know, double hypocrisy and, and double standards and such. The, the mommy groups are so exciting. So interesting. <laughs> um, you know, go to I'm the library. Glad you so. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think. Well, so there's the, the big blondes, capital T, capital B, capital B. And this mm-hmm. was uh, this was Jen. I, there's a great scene where they go to kind of like the Tupperware party or the the herbal party, the supplements. And there's like what three or four named Jen. Yeah, there's a lot of Jen. <laughs> this Jen, that Jen. But but such a uh, a paragraph or so that made me go, whoa. They're in the library. They're doing you know the play with the trains, go to story time, all that stuff. And there was just something about like the stare, where just like that stare of like get me out of here slash what am I doing here slash where am I <laughs> right just something kind of esoteric something out there that yeah. she sees in the others at Jen at times right mm-hmm. you know she's looking for like we're the same right and literally like thinking at times like are these the dogs that I saw earlier right, right? try not yeah. to give away too much you know? um, <laughs> but there's also I guess maybe in a pot well it's partly positive this idea of like motherhood and passing down you talked about passing down trauma but also just like the idea of like passing down wisdom. I'm interested in, in Nybitch, her grandma. Mm. It's like, you would think, okay, naturally, like if mom was repressed and, you know, and, and oppressed, you would think, okay, she going back in time. She would be more so, but it seems like grandma was like the free spirit. Yeah. Right. Like grandma was the artist of the family. Mm-hmm. Grandma skipped, was, skipped a generation, I guess. Yeah. She was the mystic. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the iconoclast who was practicing her folk medicine. Um, right. Maybe everyone thought was a little weird. And of course, mm. night bitch really connected with her. Right. Cause like her grandma got her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and her mom didn't really, you know, didn't want that. She's like, you know, be, be right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be sensible. Mm-hmm. Um, but night bitch never longed for a sensible life and right the problem and her grandma her grandma didn't either and acknowledged that a quick stylistic question like the be sensible and there are a lot of lines that are so that are italicized Mm. right they sound like they would come out of like a pamphlet or something like that and i thought it was so interesting because you know they're kind of like the like this isn't the exact line you know but you know do your best and put your best foot forward you know those kind of things but just sounded so real realistic what was the, the choice on that to italicize or where did those come from? This is, I mean, I had a lot of, I had a long conversation with the line editor, um, the copy uh, editor about this. And I still, I didn't have a great answer, but a lot of those would be, you know how, when you're, when you're talking, well, what you're saying is like a bit of, is, is something that has been given to you words that have been given you. They're not words that have originated out of you. Sure. Um, and we, I feel like so many things have been like given to me by so many, by my parents, Mm. by the church, by, um, whatever, whatever. So whenever I kind of got to a moment like that, I was like, this isn't, this is like the thing that you get told. This is the Mm. thing that's embedded itself. And it gets italicized then because it's, it's the thing you need to like, get out and so it was mm-hmm. an acknowledgement of sort of like these voices that um and messages that cool. we are yeah the voices in. that makes sense 
there there's the field guide which is a book she finds i think at the library right and it's for her it's like a religion of sorts she uh, it's by this wanda white who we, we talked about a few times and it's you describe you describe it in the book as like a almost like a journal because she eventually gets wanda white's email right that's maybe old maybe defunct and she's just it's like a journal for her it's like a supplication for her right but she reads these stories of these possibly real you know kind of like folklore slash you know these 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 matriarchal groups these matriarchal societies and for her wanda white becomes her like like a guru of sorts right and she just really loves to read about them there's the what's the were women <laughs> yeah. right like werewolf were women yeah who is who is wanda white for night bitch i mean i think you said it beautifully i think you put it beautifully um she does, she does be, you know, like her messages to Wanda, I think at some point she said, she says in one of them, well, this is almost like prayer writing mm-hmm. to you every day. Um, and, you know, Nightbitch doesn't pray anymore. She doesn't go to church, but she's sort of found someone who never writes back, mm-hmm. who um, <laughs> she doesn't know who they are, if they're real, and is just sending sending these messages out into the ether to her Mm -hmm. and um I don't know that felt it felt right in terms of having a sort of that part of the book sort of I think harkens back to like the grandmother Mm -hmm. um it harkens back to like the prayer of her youth in a Mennonite church um and you also just really see her longing for an older one for connection with a woman, a wise woman who knows something. And that's really her getting in touch with that, getting in touch with the fact that she needs to connect with Mm. other women. Um, And I think that that's part of the process then of her coming into community, unlikely community with with the mommy group. Right. So, you know, she, she throws 600 bucks, you know, down the, down the tubes. Right. But she's just like, ah, for her, it's just like, ah, she tells her husband, it's like, ah, it's just kind of, you know, part of the experience. She's like, oh, I, you know, she's like, takes like an ironic distance, right? She goes to these part, this party and she's like, oh, you know, right. I'm, not, I'm not really one of them. I just, Always an ironic distance, right? Oh, yeah. Can't be course. vulnerable. Yeah. Of course, right? What what are these? Are these real supplements? Are these, you know, are these just things to fool themselves? <laughs> like, what I don't know. That? I mean, I think they're real supplements. I don't, uh-huh. You'd have to ask Jen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... I think, you know, it's an MLM for women to, to have community to come mm-hmm. together, which they desperately want. Um, but it's, you know, probably around products that are uh, somewhat counterfeit and <laughs> somewhat um, making money, not, you know, losing money, making money for people up the pyramid. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I had listened to a podcast called The Secret as I was writing this book, which is all oh, about MLM. Yeah. And I don't know if I was like out to get MLMs in writing this, but it just seems like maybe there's a better way for us to come together um, in circle in supportive circles that doesn't involve uh, buying things that uh, aren't legit, you know, and, and, and getting other people to come join us and the kind of strong arming people into the circle. Um, 
Yeah. But then it was also really fun to be like, oh, a room full of like moms stoned on herbs. Like, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, you, you, uh, you, you're dancing around it very well. Like a lawyer, you're saying, you know, somewhat counterfeit, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a better way. Um, yeah. Art and performance are definitely themes. I mean, there's, there's the literal performance toward at the end of the book, which I'm not going to talk about, which is just in its on its own is just an incredible scene. Um, but just the figurative performance, you know, as a mom, you know, looking the part, whatever that means, if that means looking disheveled, if that means looking put together, you know, physically, you know, mentally, um, the power of silence, the things you don't say, the power of using your voice, you know, when she is screaming at night, for example, it gets people, gets her husband's attention. Um, there's one incredible scene where she just gives into the, the canine urges and she and her, her son, and they're just chasing each other around. She's chasing them around the playground. Like, you know, not like mom and son or father and son play, but like really like getting into it. Right. Even so much so that the, the son becomes, <laughs> he starts sleeping in a kennel, <laughs> right. Performance, performance. And then, like I said, the last scene is that, um, that incredible performance, which is so cool to me because there's like, you have critics writing about that performance within this book. It's just like <laughs> meta, like so many layers, right? I wonder about like the idea of like performing as a mom, like acting the part. Yeah, again, so well, I mean, thank you for bringing this up. But to me, this is the most interesting part of the book, um, the, you know, the theme of performance and performative motherhood. Mm. And, um, also I was really interested in the line between art and life, you know, yeah. and, and cause, because it was my thought sort of that all of the stuff leading up to her kind of formal stage performance at the end, mm -hmm was all like part of her art, you know, and she didn't know it. She was trying to find a way back to her art mm. and all of this dog stuff, which she just kind of freely gave into. Eventually she's like, Oh, this is the art. Like, mm -hmm. this is what I've been doing mm -hmm. through living sort of passionately and openly and seekingly. Mm -hmm. I've sort of arrived at what I've been looking for in, in art. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course there's resonances with that when you think about performance and motherhood, which, mm -hmm. um, I think is very, it was very much top of mind when you bring in these sort of the performative mommies who are trying, who are sort of performing perfect motherhood. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, why, what, what, you know, who does that serve? And, and, and why, why do we think we have to do that? Mm -hmm. Um, I just kind of wanted yeah, all of those questions to sort of be raised um, through those through those different storylines. I, I assume you're talking about like the performative is like both online and off, like a lot of like Instagram posts and that kind of stuff, right? Or maybe even mommy influencers. Sure. Yeah, I you know I have not gotten deep into like Instagram mommy stuff. It just has never appealed to me. But mm. um, yeah, like why do we need to make motherhood look? like sunny and clean and happy and 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 like well rested mm. it's just like what who's who's um benefiting from those images right right you know, and and what what's what is it sustaining what sort of like institutions is it reinforcing um if i were in college i would write that paper that critical Ooh. analysis paper um, not too late not too late <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. <laughs> to, to kind of, to kind of end up with, you know, there's obviously the mother son bond. Like I said, you do so well with like, it does not come off didactic at all where it's like, it's, it's like a paragraph or two that is almost like written in a more nonfiction way, mm-hmm. like out of a, out of a manual, but like not in the negative sense. Like, um, but towards the end, there's, it's on page 237. If you follow, if you have the book, this paragraph about like this idea of like the, the sun, you know, literally, you know, changing her body, you know, tearing up her body, being like the victim and the victimizer. Right. Or I should say, yeah, I don't, I don't even know if the son would be the victim, but he's the victimizer, <laughs> right. The one you love the most as a mother, the one you would again, do anything for, but he's your victimizer. He takes away your, your, youth, <laughs> your youth, your free time, your, independence right just the constant taking some of the scenes where you describe just like an average day with them yeah you know he doesn't want to use the the potty to go poo he you know this and that and it's just like constant taking and taking and taking and like you said how can you as any parent how can you like come out looking like you know hair grade and this and i mean you got you know i have i have nine different things different juices stains on my shirt by the end of the day right, you know, right. and, dirt and all that um the son doesn't have a name but he's obviously a huge character who i guess what are you saying about the the mother's son bond that's not like cheesy and like you know what you do love him though but you have so many important things to say and you can say it in better words than than i can maybe just about that bond and who that son is to the mom yeah i think i think what we feel really comfortable saying as mothers and have been taught to be comfortable saying is like you've been nothing but joy and light in my life (laughs) you know I couldn't imagine my life without you which which is you know like these things were true yes um I'm so glad I had you like all of those things are true Mm -hmm. and this completely changed my life I'm not who I was before Mm -hmm it was really hard and continues to be really hard to figure Mm -hmm. out how to be this new person. I I guess I'm just, you know, why, why are, why are we not allowed to say those things? Like, why are we not allowed to be honest about how parenthood is amazing Mm -hmm. and fulfilling and also like, destructive i mean it is the destruction of a former life and a former self Uh um and like really hard and um it takes a it's like this constant process of Mm -hmm. transition you know and and learning and becoming um i mean someone asked me a question about that you know like what are you going to say to your son when your son reads the book you know or how do you (laughs) feel about your son reading the book and I was like, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little scared, obviously, but yeah. I, I also would hope the kind of relationship I want to have with my son is where he can ask me anything and I can tell him the truth and mm. we can have an open and honest relationship and mm. um, where he knows that I love him intensely and deeply and eternally. And, you know, it was also really hard to become a mom. Mm. And I think both of those things can be true. Um, and it's like sort of a relief to have mm. the truth out in the open. Right. And that's, that's like the feedback I've been getting from a lot of women. I, I think mm-hmm. they're just like, thank you for putting like the truth out in the open because it's been so hard 
to say it. Just tell them to go look up the word fiction in the dictionary, right? It's fiction. It's fiction. It's all made up. So it's a lot easier. Yeah. The only way you can tell the truth is in fiction. I won't do it the same justice, but if I can just read a little bit of that paragraph, that's so good. It's, It's on 237. This thing comes from us, she would explain in interviews. It rips its way out of us, literally tears us into in a wash of great pain and blood and shit and piss. If the child does not enter into the world this way, then it is cut from us with a knife. The child is removed and our organs are taken out as well before being sewn back inside. It is perhaps the most violent experience a human can have aside from death itself. To repeat that sentence, it is perhaps the most violent experience a human can have aside from death itself. And this performance is meant to underscore the brutality and power and darkness of motherhood. For modern, for modern motherhood has been neutered and sanitized. If I could snap, I would. <laughs> I literally cannot snap. But I, I mean, like I said, beautifully said. And again, it's like that was Night Bitch in an interview. You know, there's so many like layers there, levels where it's um, it's you writing it, but it's like, you know, suppose it comes from a newspaper article or that kind of thing. So, yeah. Long story short, um, what an art installation yourself that this book is. Um, just so many, uh, so many layers, so many levels, stories within stories. I, I think, I think included is like a list of questions for book clubs, and I can imagine book clubs just, you know, making months and months of discussion of this book. Right? <laughs> have you been able to to drop in on any book clubs for night? Books? I have, I have, and it's been, it's so fun um, oh, and man. such an honor to just hear what people think i mean mm. they want to ask me questions but i'm like can i ask you guys some yeah questions? um yeah it's been really fun besides the excitement of um of the the movie the future movie hopefully what other projects are you working on yeah i don't want to put pressure on you you know no no pressure <laughs> um trying to get back into some short stories which are my okay. first love uh but finding that I've completely forgotten even what a short story is. So that's (laughs) really fun. And then just have, I mean, the fun part of writing a new novel, which is not writing it and just thinking about it. um, Thinking about some ideas. Sitting out here in my sunroom, um, just trying to get into it. And again, like maybe once school starts, I'll um, actually start putting putting more words on the page. All right. Beyonce had the album come out last week and she was credited like 24 writers. Maybe you'll credit Brian Eno, maybe with like, you know what I mean? He's Some already in the acknowledgments. Brian <laughs> yes. Eno, top. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, again, thank you so much for talking to me. It's so awesome to to you know talk to you in your lab, so to speak, and talk about the craft and just all the cool and incredible themes and and just skill shown in that book. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for your incredibly smart questions and just your absolute generosity. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate that so much. What a pleasure it's been today to speak to Rachel Yoder and continue good luck to her with her writing. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Please follow on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast. That's all one word. Or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. And pardon me, Please share your any contact info, social media info, maybe any particular place you'd like us to buy the book. Sure. Right. Um, yeah, I'm on Instagram at, at Rayjoy, R-A-I-J-O-Y, and on Twitter at Rachel Yoder. Um, 
yeah, buy it at bookshop.org if you can. Okay. Um, you can also, if you want a signed copy, buy it from Prairie Lights in Iowa City and I'll run over there and sign it nice. for you and they'll ship it to you. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Thank you. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation. And I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental. And the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. And both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 137 with Jose Antonio Vargas, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, Emmy nominated filmmaker, and Tony nominated producer. A leading voice for the human rights of immigrants, his best-selling memoir, Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen, was published by HarperCollins in 2018. His second book, Why Does Not a Country, will be published by Knopf in 2023. And that episode will air on August 12th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Rachel Yoder, whose works, like Night Bitch, give you chills at will.